All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Excellent, excellent. My name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really glad you're here tonight. And uh, if you're a guest, I just hope you find this to be a, a safe place to take the next step, whatever that is, towards this incredible God that we've discovered. And, and maybe you're here just trying to figure out if he's real. Maybe circumstances of your life have brought you into this place. Maybe you're not even sure how you got here. Maybe somebody promised you dinner later, and somehow you ended up here. I'm just glad you're here. Um, all of us have been on a, a journey, and uh, all of us have been born with this nature that, that, that makes us skeptical of God, and, and yet sometimes the circumstances of our life just bring us into a place, and we don't really know how we got here, but we're here, and, and we begin to learn about this God, and we come studying this Word, and we come trying to learn what the Bible says about God and what God reveals about Himself, and we think we're here to gain information, but what happens to us is along the way we begin to fall in love, and we begin to realize that there's a very personal, real God who wants to really interact with us and guide us and lead us, and we find Him along the journey, and it's a surprise to us. And we, we learn that the more we surrender, the more he changes who we are. And it's not that we have to follow some religion. It's not that we have to figure out a bunch of rules to follow. We just surrender to him, and he changes us from the inside. And it's incredible. And, and so each week we just come back here, and we just try to learn more, and we try to surrender more, and we ask more questions. And we just try to understand this God, and we just say thank you through worship. And we hang out together and celebrate what he's doing. So that's what this church is all about, and I'm glad you're here. We're in week, I don't know, 20 or something of a series about end times. And uh, it started out with about 10 weeks of talking about why the world is, is, is in the end of times and, and the things that we've seen. And, and then we spent the last, I don't know, however many weeks working through Revelation. And, and now we are uh, towards the end of Revelation. In fact, next week we will end this series, which is pretty incredible. But Revelation is a book that for many people is a book that kind of, well, honestly, a lot of Christians stiff arm it. It's too weird. It's got too much craziness. It just seems out of this world. And yet we've learned that if you've read the other 65 books, this one makes a lot of sense. And, and that everything that's introduced in this book has actually been present in other books before. And that there's a consistent theme from beginning to end, a story being told, that comes together in Revelation. Last week we talked about how it was necessary uh, after the seven seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that, that God still had to deal with this philosophy of humanism. He had to deal with this, this philosophy that was in the Bibles called Babylon. And what it really is, is it's just a mindset of, I don't need God, I can be my own God. And it started way back at the Tower of Babel in Genesis early in the book where, where man decided, okay, God flooded the world. We're going to build our own tower to God so that he can never flood us again and we'll be God. And that thought, that process, that mindset, or, or now that theology uh, is very much prevalent in our society. We call it humanism. I don't need God. I can be my own God. I don't need God to set standards. I can set my own standards. I don't need God to save me. I'll figure out how to save myself. And so last week we learned how God uh, basically destroyed that humanistic philosophy. And this week he turns and he continues to talk about Babylon. But he turns and he talks now about a, a physical, literal city called Babylon. And he talks about what will happen to this city in end times. 
Revelation 18.1. And after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. Now think about that. A mighty angel so fresh from the presence of God that he is illuminating the entire world. Now remember the sun has been destroyed. Right? That was one of the judgments that we looked about last week. This angel shows up. He's huge. He's massive. And the glory on him from his presence with God is lighting up the entire world. Everybody can see him. Think about the contrast from the darkness. And then all of a sudden, this angel appears and he's massive. And the glory of God is illuminating the world. Verse 2, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. We learned that this grotesque parody that we've been talking about of the Trinity, that, that, that in the end times, Satan puts together Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And they're a, a mimicking of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, the Bible tells us that in end times, this grotesque uh, parody of the Trinity will have a city in which it is based. And the city's called Babylon. And theologians for years have tried to figure out which city is this. And it usually boils down to two choices. One is Rome, and the other is literally Babylon. Babylon that's in Iraq, that's on the Euphrates. Many people say, well, it must be Rome because we learned that in a chapter prior that, that the uh, beast is on top of seven mountains and that seven mountains surround Rome, so it must be Rome. We've also learned that the false prophet, many people believe, has some involvement with the Catholic Church, so that must be involved somehow. And so many people have looked carefully to try to figure out where this city is going to be. But here's some things that we know from God's Word. Remember, we said when we started this series, we're not going to speculate. We're going to look at what we truly know from God's Word. The first thing we know is Babylon is a literal city. It is a city of worldwide importance and influence. It's going to be the capital of the Antichrist. Babylon and the Antichrist are closely connected with one another. It will be the center of false religion. It will be the center of world commerce. Babylon will persecute God's people. Babylon will be destroyed suddenly and at the end of tribulation never to rise again and will be completely wiped out in one hour. Those are the things we know from Scripture about this city. These clues reveal that this city is going to be a great religious and economic capital, the Antichrist kingdom in the last days. Religion and commerce will share the same geographic location. Babylon is both a theology and a city, a physical place. And I believe taking all that into account, the best answer is that Babylon will be the city on the Euphrates in Iraq. I don't believe it's Rome. That's just my opinion. And I'm going to tell you why. Several things point to the idea that this Babylon, the original Babylon that was on the Euphrates, will in end times become once again a great city. 
First and foremost is in the Bible, when the Bible says something, it's usually what it says. Okay? And over and over, Babylon is referred to as Babylon. Okay? It's possible that it's a code name for some other city like Rome or New York or Jerusalem. But the text doesn't indicate to us that it should be interpreted figuratively. So it's best to probably look at it literally. Second, Babylon is mentioned in the Bible as a city more than Jerusalem. Scripture reveals Babylon about 300 times. Throughout Scripture, Babylon symbolizes the epitome of the rebellion against God. It's the city where man first began to worship for himself in an organized rebellion against God. It's a literal city in an anti-God system. It was the capital city of the first world leader, Nimrod. It's the city where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. Capital city of the first four Gentile world empires to rule over Jerusalem. And since Babylon was the first, or the first city of the first world ruler, Scripture pictures it in end times as the last city of the last world ruler. Henry Morris highlights the advantages of Babylon being this world capital. He says, Babylon is indeed a prime prospect for rebuilding apart from anything in prophecy. Its location is the most ideal in the world for any kind of international center. Not only because it sits in beautiful and the fertile Tigris-Euphrates plain, but it's near some of the world's richest oil reserves. Computer studies for the Institute of Creation Research have shown, for example, that Babylon is very near the geographic center of all the Earth's land masses. It is within navigable distance to the Persian Gulf. It is crossroads to the three great continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. There is no more ideal location anywhere in the world for trade center, a world communication center, a world banking center, a world educational center, and especially a world capital. The greatest historian of modern times, Arnold Toynbee, used to stress that all his readers and hearers that Babylon would be the best place in the world to build a future world cultural metropolis. The fourth reason I believe it's Babylon is that it's mentioned, the Euphrates River is mentioned twice in Scripture in Revelation. We saw earlier that four angels, fallen angels, demons, were brought out of the river Euphrates. All the activity seems to be happening in the original Fertile Crescent. Zechariah, a prophet, said thousands of years before that Babylon would be rebuilt, that Babylon would see a future, and that there would be things that happened in Babylon where the evil of the future would rest in that city. In Isaiah 13, he predicted the city would be destroyed suddenly and completely. We haven't seen that happen yet. The Babylon that is on the Euphrates has never gone through a sudden, quick, complete devastation. So in order for that prophecy to be true, the city has to be rebuilt, and that will be part of the end times, which is exactly what the Bible says happens. So it's more likely that Babylon will be this rebuilt city of the Antichrist. Vernon McKee suggests this. Babylon is yet to play. In that day, Babylon will dominate and rule the world. The capital of the Antichrist will be Babylon, and he'll have first total dictatorship. The world will be an awful place. In that day, everything will center in Babylon. The stock market will be read from Babylon, not New York. Babylon, instead of Paris, will set the styles for the world. A play, in order to be successful, will have to lie in success in Babylon, not London. Everything in this city will be in rebellion against Almighty God, and it centers in the Antichrist. 
Verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The angel gives a warning to God's people that they're not where they need to be. The angel gives a warning to them that they need to move to a safer location because Babylon is about to come under the judgment of God. Jesus told us that this would happen. Jesus told us there would be a day when the table would turn. He said it in Matthew 24 in what we call the Olivet Discourse. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go back to his house, and let one who's in the field not return to take his cloak. Oh, for women who are pregnant and nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight won't be in winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be great tribulation such as never been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, the days are cut short. And now at the end of tribulation, the angels warning the believers to free Babylon, just like the angels warned Lot to free Sodom. And so as we move from chapter 4 to chapter 18, we've seen the great tribulation play out. And now we're towards the end of that great tribulation. And note that Jesus said, if it wasn't for the sake of the elect, because of that, those days are cut short. Otherwise, nobody would survive. Angel warns if they stay in the holy city, they're going to experience his wrath. So how were these days shortened? What happened that stopped this process? What was the event that, that, that allowed people to live? Well, the event was the second coming of Christ. These days would have played out, but instead, Jesus steps back into his creation again, and we begin to see the second coming. Now, notice that Jesus said something else in Matthew in the very next verse. Immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Actually, let me go back. And if those days had not been cut short, he says, no human being would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, or don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines on the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus warns them about exactly what we've been seeing. A false Christ, a false prophet, an antichrist doing amazing miracles, amazing wonders, deceiving all kinds of people and possibly even the elect. And he says, look, when that antichrist comes back to life from a mortal head wound, don't believe it's me. Because when I come back, the whole world's going to know it. You won't have to wonder if I'm in the inner room or if I'm out in the streets. The whole world's going to know when I come back the second time. There'll be no doubt. He continues, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. We saw that in the last chapter. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, 
and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is exactly what Jesus promised in Matthew. When he sat on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and they said, will you tell us what's going to happen in the end? He literally walks them through Revelation chapter 14 and beyond. He says, look, here's what's going to happen. And now in Revelation, we see his words exactly true. He continued in verse five, John continues, for her sins are heaped up high as heaven and God has remembered her inequities. Talking about... Babylon, pay her back as she has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I will never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine and she'll be burned up with fire for the mighty is the Lord God who judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand afar and say, Alas, the great city, mighty Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. They threw dust on their heads and they wept, crying out, Alas, the great city had all the ships at sea. We grew rich by her wealth, and in a single hour she's been laid waste. And a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. That passage reminds us of a passage way back in Jeremiah, thousands of years before, talking about this exact moment. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 60, wrote in the book, All the disaster that should come along Babylon, and all these words are written concerning Babylon. Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it in the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. And then the main reason why God is so frustrated and so angry at this city, Babylon, and why it so desperately deserves his judgment, in verse 24 he said, And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints, and of all the earth who've been slain on earth. And when God finishes pouring out his judgment on this city, Babylon, it'll be wiped out in one hour. And at that point, the great tribulation is now over. Then we would turn to chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Now think about this. Every angel, every angel that's ever been created who's following God, the soul of every believer that was raptured, including you and me, the voice of the martyrs of tribulation, the 24 elders, the creatures around the throne, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions. John says way too many for anybody to ever count. And they're all praising God at the highest of their voice. And that praise literally comes from heaven and rocks the earth. It is the celebration cry of the victors. Revelation 19.2. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he's avenged on her the blood of his servants. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. An incredible word, Alleluia, is actually borrowed from Hebrews. The entire Old Testament is in Greek, but John turns to an old Hebrew word, Alleluia, at the end of Revelation. It's mentioned four times in Revelation, nowhere else in the New Testament. It belongs here because God's people are voicing praise without restraint because he has destroyed Babylon. Hallelujah is Hebrew for praise the Lord. And it's not just praise the Lord. It carries with it what's called an imperative verb, an imperative voice. It means it's a command. You praise the Lord. It's an encouragement and an exhortation to praise God. It's the loudest, most incredible praise ever heard on earth. Then John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. Everybody turn your cell phones down. Say, Okay. <laughs> Um, for it was fine linen of the righteous deeds of the saints. Remember back in Revelation 7, we saw a great multitude saved out of the great tribulation, ready for the end of the world. And, and that multitude and 24 elders and the, the four living creatures were celebrating God. Now we see them crying out and thanking God for his justice. And there's got to be a part of us that just goes... Is it okay that God's people rejoice when judgment comes? I mean, doesn't that feel like, I mean, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right, right? I mean, that, that God has judged the world, that millions of people are going to die, that they are going to be apart from God for all of eternity, and yet all of heaven, including us in our resurrected uh, state, are going to be praising God. And there's a part of us that just goes, ugh. And this is loud, enthusiastic praise. And yet what we don't see on this side of eternity is just how just it is. Remember we talked about how we underestimate His holiness so we don't understand His wrath. When we see Him in His full glory, when, we're, when we get to God and we see Him fully, we'll understand His holiness, we'll understand His justice, and we'll understand that what He's doing is measured and appropriate and incredible because he's ridding the world of those who have turned against him. And we will praise loudly and enthusiastically. And there's something thrilling about a large number of believers giving everything they have to God in praise. And one reason they're praising is that the Lamb of God is going to be reunited with his people and his family. And the best description they can come up with is, is like a marriage. <coughs> marriage of the Lamb. The Messiah pictured throughout Scripture in the Old Testament. Israel and God's people are his wife, his spouse. God's people are often unfaithful, but God still loves them and brings them back. And in the New Testament, the church is presented as the bride of Christ waiting for the day of marriage. 
And we've talked about this at length, marriage in the old biblical times, how the, the groom would come for the bride, how he would, he would basically become betrothed to her, and then, and then he'd go away and he'd make a home for her. And when the home was ready, the whole town would come and get her, and they'd celebrate, and they'd come back, and there'd be a huge wedding feast. And we went through that, and we've seen how God has brought his church out of the world. He's raptured the believers. They've been in heaven getting ready. And now it's time for the wedding supper, the, the, the celebration of the marriage. And so John says that now's the time that we're going to celebrate this perfect union with Jesus. His people will be clean and bright. Reflects purity and loyalty and faithfulness. It's the the white radiance that, that signifies glorification. Paul spoke of this in 2 Corinthians. For I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. But on this day, the entire world will see the church exactly as she is, the precious bride of Christ. Spurgeon said it this way, the bride of Christ is sort of a Cinderella now, sitting among the ashes. She's like her Lord, despised and rejected of men. The watchmen smite her and take away her veil from her, for they know her not, even as they knew not her Lord. But when he shall appear, then she shall appear also. And in his glorious manifestation, she also will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of the Father. And the angel said to me, Blessed, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John says, these are the true words of God, as if he knew we would be asking. So we needed some reassurance that this wedding will take place, that, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, that he's waiting for us like a groom waits for a bride, that we will be made righteous and pure and holy, and on one day we'll be reunited with our Savior like a groom is reunited with his future spouse. It's too good to be true. But John says these are the true sayings of God. You can bank on this. And notice that angel that lit up the whole world, the huge angel. You look at that angel and and it's an incredible created being of God. Huge angel shining in God's glory. You'd think we'd fall down and worship it, right? And that's what John does. This huge angel illuminating God's presence. He falls down and the angel goes, no, no, no. I'm just like you are. I'm just like you are. I'm nothing compared to God. Don't do that. Don't worship me. You see, because we underestimate just how righteous and glorious we will be at this moment. We can't picture it. But the angel says, no, don't bow down and worship me. And just think about this. Those angels will be with us throughout all of eternity. And God's judgment is poured out on earth. We begin to see his glory. First with the angels and then... Well, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. 
And the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a sense that everything we've been studying, everything from the beginning of Revelation until this moment, has pointed to this moment when Jesus will appear and be fully revealed in who he really is. That's the revelation of the book of Revelations. Right? It's not a book of revelations. There's one revelation and it's Jesus. And what we're supposed to see is that he is a conquering warrior. And he's revealed here in that moment. And he returns to earth with power and glory. Now earlier in Revelation 4, if you remember, John saw heaven open so that he could go in. Right? You remember that? The doors of heaven open and John was able to go in. And now we see the doors of heaven open so Jesus can come out. Time has come at last for a full, glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the moment in Revelation we've all been waiting for. It's the most reference, one of the most referenced topics in the Bible. 23 of the 27 New Testament books explicitly describe his visible, literal, physical, and glorious return to earth. In the New Testament, there are over 300 references to the second coming of Jesus. Jesus himself referred to it over 20 times. His followers, you and me, are commanded to be ready for it over 50 times in the Bible. This is not some random concept. This is a key concept of theology. In biblical times, most soldiers were foot soldiers. To have someone come on a horse spoke of power and speed and victory. According to Zechariah 14, when Jesus returns, he will come down and step on the Mount of Olives. Think about this. You know, I always talk about how in the Bible, geography is critical. You have to understand where these places are and why they're important. And God never does anything by accident. So one day, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they go to the Mount of Olives. Okay, The Mount of Olives is right across from the Temple Mount. If you look at that picture, the temple's right there. We'd be standing literally on the Mount of Olives. Okay, And Jesus often went there, and he's walking with his disciples. And they tell him, what will be the sign of the end? Because what had happened is they had looked at that temple, not the dome, but the temple that was there. And they had said, isn't this magnificent? And Jesus said, I'm telling you, not one stone's going to be standing on that. And it prompted them to say, well, what's going to be the sign of the end? And how will we know the end? And they're walking to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sits them down. And they sit on the Mount of Olives, and he begins to tell them a story about end times. He begins to tell them how there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and, and how all these things are going to happen, and how they're going to see all this stuff happen, right? And he tells them all the things we've been reading about in the Olivet Discourse. That's why it's called that. And then he tells them there's going to be a day when... I'm literally physically going to return. And he knew he was standing in the exact place where he was going to return. And at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, there is a garden. It's outlined there in white called the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Gethsemane means oil press, olive press. It turns out that area is an olive garden. Okay, So Jesus frequently would retire to this olive garden to pray. And when they would make olives, they'd take the olives and they'd run a big boulder over them and it would pour out oil in three different clarities. And they'd press the olives three times. Jesus, the night before he's crucified, goes to the garden of Gethsemane and is pressed three times by God. Three times he goes away to pray. Three times he comes back committed to what God wants him to do. It wasn't accidental that he was at the Garden of Gethsemane. And now what we see is Jesus says, okay, and when I return, I'm coming back to this place. Remember, this is also the place I left from. Geography is never coincidental in the Bible. Jesus left from the Mount of Olives and the angel said, remember, you'll see him descend just like he ascended. Everything is symbolic in the Bible. It's not there by accident. We see Jesus here on a white horse. And then we see several descriptions of him, and each description tells us something about him. It says he's faithful and true. That title shows that Jesus is the one who keeps his promises. He promised judgment, he brought judgment. He promised justice, he brought justice. John reiterates that. He says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Don't miss that. Jesus made war in righteousness. In other words, war was necessary to cleanse the world of unrighteousness. You can't support righteousness as God if you're not willing to destroy unrighteousness. And although Jesus came and although Revelation looks horrible and it looks terrible, God himself tells us it's measured and it's just. Any view of God which eliminates the judgment part, the righteousness part, the holiness part, and how he has to do that as God is a false doctrine that just suggests a sentimental attraction to Jesus without really understanding who he really is. He goes on, he says, his eyes were like the flame of fire. What are flames of fire? Well, eyes that are flames of fire discern the secrets of all hearts. There are no secrets that Christ does not see. There's no lewd thought, no unbelieving skepticism that Christ doesn't read and isn't aware of. There's no hypocrisy. There's no deceit that he doesn't understand. He reads us like we read a book. Nothing hidden from him. His eyes like a flame of fire read us through and through and know us to the innermost part of our soul. On his head were many crowns. The last time we saw Jesus, he wore a crown of thorns. Now he comes back wearing many crowns. The Roman word for crown is diadem. It's a crown of royalty and authority. It's not the crown of achievement. It's the crown of authority. And the fact that there are so many crowns tells us that he's the ultimate and royal authority and power. He is the king of kings. So he wears all the king's crowns. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. People debate whether that's his own blood or the blood of his enemies. Either is possible. And he's surrounded, don't get the, miss this, by the armies of heaven. Who are those people? You and me. He's surrounded by the armies of heaven. 
There's little doubt that angels will also accompany Jesus and his people. But the main idea is that the Son of God is going to lead the people of God from heaven against earth. And notice this. There's no mention in God's army of any weapon for any soldier in God's army. The only thing we're told is that they have the only thing they need. They are clothed in fine linen, they are white, they are clean, and Jesus is leading them. He will not return alone at His second coming. When He returns to judge the nations and establish His glory on earth, He'll be accompanied by a great crowd. The crowd will be made up of angels and redeemed humans. All believers in Christ have a round-trip ticket, by the way. When we're raptured, we have a round-trip ticket. We're coming back. But we'll be the bride of Christ at that point, returning with Him. This was prophesied many times. Zechariah said, Then the Lord my God will come and all His holy ones with Him. Matthew said, When the Son of Man comes in glory, all the angels with Him, and He will sit upon His glorious throne. Paul in Thessalonians said, When the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, He will come with His mighty angels. And then Joel said, Listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of His holy ones. Then we're told that out of Jesus' mouth goes a sharp sword. The idea isn't that Jesus has a sword in His mouth and He's doing this to people. He's basically, it's a dramatic way of talking about the power of His Word. That His Word goes out and slays people. Five times in the book of Revelation, John emphasizes that the sword comes out of his mouth. And then we're told he will rule with a rod of iron. He comes to rule in triumph. He comes to take his place as the king of kings, to displace every king who's reigning on earth. And then it tells us there's a name on his thigh. Easily visible when seated on a horse. And at the same time, no one knows the name except himself, and no one can comprehend it. We see Jesus at the second coming. Jesus literally coming back to earth. Remember we talked about how he stepped into creation at his birth. He died, resurrected, went back to heaven at his ascension. He will call us home at the rapture, but He will not physically return to earth. We'll meet Him in the clouds. But there's a time in the end, at the end of the great tribulation, at the end of things, Jesus will physically, literally step back on earth and command Himself as the Lord of lords and kings of kings. Why is He coming back? What's the reason for Him coming back? Let me give you a few of them. He's coming back to fulfill His promise. He promised us He'd be back. He promised us He would come and set things straight. So one reason He's coming back is to fulfill His promise. The second, He's coming back to defeat the Antichrist and the armies that support Him. The third, He's coming to regather and bring back home faithful Israel. The next reason, He's coming to judge the living. He has a judgment yet to come that has to happen. He's coming to resurrect the dead. He's coming to bind the devil, and he's coming to establish himself as king. He will come personally, literally, visibly, suddenly, dramatically, gloriously, triumphantly, and absolutely to earth. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly overhead, Come and gather for the great supper of God. 
to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Imagine that. You're in an army ready to go up against God, and an angel flies over and says, Birds, get ready. We're about to have a feast for you. And this angel is standing in the sun. Think about that for a minute. This angel is so bright that he shines with the glory of God. And he can be seen as the sun. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and it was the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those that worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the description of Armageddon. Just the mention of that word, Armageddon brings all kinds of images of cataclysm and carnage and catastrophes. The word Armageddon, by the way, is only found one time in the Bible. Revelation 16, 16. Yet this one word is probably the most familiar biblical term about end-time prophecy. Everybody seems to know about Armageddon. The Armageddon word is made up of two different words from Hebrew. Har, meaning mountain, and Megiddo, a city in the northern part of Israel. The ancient city of Megiddo was built on a hill, and so the mountain of Megiddo is called Har Megiddo, what we call in English Armageddon. Now, people have a lot of misconceptions about Armageddon. It's not a single battle. People often refer to this as the Battle of Armageddon. It's one battle, it's going to be over. That's not what Armageddon is. It's actually a war, a campaign of all the earthly kings coming to destroy Israel and every battle that occurs along that way. And it happens over time. But eventually they all get to the, to the valley of Megiddo and they're ready to take Jerusalem. The end of the Great Tribulation, they attack Israel. They gather. They're going to eradicate the Jewish people. That's been their goal. What has Satan wanted to do from the beginning of time? Eradicate the Jewish people. Why? Because it's from the Jewish people that God promised the Messiah. And so he's looking to eradicate still the Jewish people. And this is the great war that occurs at the end of times as all the armies of the world come to attack Israel. And they're going to capture Jerusalem. They're going to look like they're successful. They're going to come down the valley of Megiddo. They're going to come into Jerusalem. They're going to capture the city. And fortunately by then, most believers have fled because Jesus already told them, when you see the abomination, get out of here. And they're in Jerusalem and they're ready to destroy every remnant of faithful Jewish people. And this campaign of Armageddon will spread out over 20,000 square miles. It'll encompass the entire land from Megiddo all the way south. 200 miles from north to south, 100 miles east to west. The most descriptive passage about the severity and brutality of Armageddon is in Revelation 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar and the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who has the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia or miles. Wow. Notice the, 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 the visual part here of, of a winepress, the winepress of the fury of God. That's going to be a key in a minute that I'm going to bring up again. This passage raises an important question. Is blood really going to flow... As deep as a horse's bridle, four feet deep for a distance of 200 miles. I mean, picture that. Blood, four feet deep, 200 miles. Some believe it will. Others maintain that this can't be interpreted literally, and the language is exaggerated to impress the reader with the massive extent of slaughter and bloodletting. While either of these views is possible, I tend to lean towards the second one. I believe the picture here is drawn from an imagery of the wine press. When grapes were put into a wine press, there would be people in the wine press who would stomp around the grapes so the juice would be released into a collection vat. We've all seen this. The image in Revelation 14 is the great wine press of God's wrath. The Lord is the one now who's doing the stomping. He's stomping on people, not grapes. And what pours out is blood, not grape juice. The imagery suggests that the stomping of his judgment is so intense that the blood from his wine press will splash out as high as a horse's bridle. Isaiah talked about this thousands of years before. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garment from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? I've tried in the wine press alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk with my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth." Thousands of years before. Joel said it this way again, thousands of years before. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people Israel. This is a vivid image of the veracity of God's judgment on earth. He's saying that at Armageddon, he's going to throw all the nations into his great wine press. 
and that his intense blood-spattering judgment will extend from Israel and Megiddo all the way south past Jerusalem. And we see in this battle of Armageddon, there are about seven stages to to the process to the Armageddon. The first is the Euphrates River dries up. That was the sixth bowl judgment from last week. The next is the Antichrist is going to ally all all the armies of the world to come against the Jews once and for all. They're going to attack Jerusalem and it will fall. And then Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. He'll destroy the armies gathered against Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. And then he'll descend out in Jordan where God's people have fled to to deliver the Jewish remnant. And then he's going to destroy the armies of the Valley of Armageddon. But when you read about this Armageddon, it's a little bit disappointing. I mean, Satan's been planning to defeat Jesus for eons. The battle you thought would come one day, and in your mind you have this picture of this huge battle of Armageddon, and yet you blink and you miss it. There's no real battle here. Jesus speaks and they die. The power of his word takes them out. His entire army is dressed in white. We don't have any any kind of weapons. We don't do anything. We just celebrate what God's doing. I thought in the Bible after reading Revelation that there would be several chapters of Armageddon, but the truth is it's really no contest. I think Barnhouse described it the best. The battle of Armageddon is the laughter of God against the climax of man's arrogance. I love that quote. Satan's been planning for eons, and he grossly underestimates the power of God. And truthfully, many of us have too. We see Jesus at Christmas as a baby. He's innocent. He's calm. He's brought into the world. He's God on earth. He's full of love and mercy and grace. Born in in a manger, a a shack uh, to poor parents who are really parents from nowhere. They're nobodies. They're poor. They come from a town, Nazareth, which really nothing ever happens there. And they go to this little town, Bethlehem, which was really nothing. He's born and he's put in a feeding trough where animals feed. He comes the first time as a sacrificial lamb. He's announced to shepherds who are in the field. He comes as this gentle, loving lamb to show the world the love of God. To show them that they've been separated from God, but that he's here to bring them back. He came here to do the one thing he couldn't do in heaven, which is to take our punishment for our sin and resurrect so that we could step in a great relationship with God. He comes as a gentle, humble, loving, merciful lamb to show us the heart of God. But now we see him fully revealed. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He offers the world salvation in his love and mercy and grace, but he demands a response. Because he's holy and righteous and just, he has to bring justice on those who refuse God. So now we see him fully revealed. He's not just the Lamb of God who paid the sacrifice for our sins. He's a conquering warrior. And every ounce of every bit of power of God is within him. He's been unleashed by God to bring judgment and justice to the world. 
His first mission to earth was to save the world. His second mission is to judge and bring justice to the world. He has to come. That's, that's what we learn from this book, that, that God would be unholy if he just ignored all the things that have happened over the decades and eons. He has to come back. He has to set the world right. And he's got to bring justice to people who've been crying out for it. How many times have you heard people say, when is God going to do something about all the evil in the world? Well, the answer is here. <coughs> Why is he waiting? Because he doesn't want to have to punish people. He, he really would rather that they just... Say, you know what? I just trust Jesus. I'm going to let him take my place. He's been punished. He was perfect. I'm not. He says he loves me. He says he'll take my place on the cross. I know I deserve punishment. I'll just let Jesus take it for me. And it's God's desire that everybody, everybody on earth takes that choice instead of the choice to stiff arm and reject God. But the challenge is following Jesus is all about embracing all of who he is. We've now seen him fully revealed. The revelation is Jesus. There is a judgment, warrior, justice side of Jesus that is just as real as the baby in the manger that's full of love and mercy and grace and came to save the world. We've now seen him fully revealed. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's our Savior who brings mercy, grace, and unconditional love. But he's also righteous, holy, and justice comes through judgment as his destiny. So two things happen as a result of Armageddon. First thing is the Antichrist and the false prophet. Two-thirds of that false trinity are going to be defeated by Jesus himself and cast into the lake of fire. Two-thirds of that trinity we no longer have to deal with. Second thing that happens after Armageddon is there will be no wars and no battles on earth for a thousand years. But there's going to be a day in the future, as sure as today, when Jesus is going to speak the truth of his word, and everyone on earth will either live or die based on where they stand related to that truth. When he speaks, the sword of his mouth slays those who don't know him and is, brings praise to those who do. Now, Jesus still has Satan to deal with, the third part of that trinity. And as we close out Revelation next week, we're going to look at, at what happens to Satan. And it will be our last week here at Sarasota Alliance. But Christmas is about embracing all of who Jesus is. Now, I talked about how hard it is to preach about this at Christmas. But the truth is, we have to accept this as much as we have to accept the traditional Christmas story. The revelation is Jesus, and in this book, he is now to us fully revealed. No middle ground, by the way. You and I have to embrace all of who he is, or we've placed our faith in a lie. We can't accept the loving, merciful, compassionate Jesus unless we also accept the judging, righteous, and holy Jesus. Satan grossly underestimated who Jesus was. He underestimated his justice, his righteousness, his power, and his authority. And I can't help but wonder if some here tonight have done the same thing. 
Have you underestimated God's response to your sin? Do you actually believe that a holy, righteous God is going to somehow judge on a curve or that you're going to be able to trick him or deceive him so that what you've done really doesn't have to be dealt with? Have you underestimated his holiness and how offended he is by your sin and my sin? Have you underestimated his promise to bring judgment? Do you really think all these things that have been talked about for thousands of years that happened exactly the way he said they would happen, do you really think that's coincidence? Have you not understood his very nature that requires he bring justice? And do you not understand that Jesus requires a decision from each one of us? The die has been cast. We are in the end times. You're either in or you're out. And if you're in, you're in forever. And if you're out, you're out forever. Not God's choice. It's all yours. And you're not promised tomorrow. So I beg you to make the choice for Jesus tonight. Let's pray. God, as we get towards the end of this incredible book, it is just so obvious that you are who you say you are and you're going to do what you said you're going to do. And so we come in faith and we trust you. And God, truthfully, there's part of this we don't understand. There's part of this that bothers us. There's part of this that makes us uneasy. But God, we trust you. And even though we don't understand, we know who we stand under. And tonight, God, many of us are looking at the end of times wondering, how can a loving God bring that kind of fury and that kind of wrath onto his creation? Sometimes we wonder, how can people reject such a loving God? And how can a holy God ignore people who reject him? So, God, we know you're just, we know you're righteous, and you know that you have to judge and clean the world before you can bring us into a millennial kingdom. So we trust you even when we don't understand. And for those tonight, God, who don't know you, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them in some way. Maybe they just have always thought of you as some judging guy sitting up on a hill evaluating everything they do. Would you reveal yourself to them in the love and compassion you have for them? Would you show them who you really are? Would you do something that is so personal and so intimate that they have no doubt it's you? God, would you draw your heart to theirs? And let them fall in love with you the way many others have. We just love you. We trust you. We accept all of you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.